4: Welcome to the Third Coast Podcast. I'm Katie Mingle. You'll hear our weekly radio show, V-Sound, here, as well as the occasional story curated recently from our audio library at thirdcoastfestival.org. The Third Coast Festival is a nonprofit organization whose livelihood depends in part on support from listeners like you. To find out how you can help, or to check out all of the cool stuff we do apart from our radio show, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Thanks, and enjoy the podcast.
3: My name is Hakeem Shahi. My prison number was 10199050. I was a federal prisoner from 1989 to 2006.
5: From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Resound.
6: Nine cells, nine bodies, nine stories.
5: Who are these people? ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sounds, sound bites, and sonic gems we find all over the world. On the air, on the web, on the job, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and bring you the best of what we hear. Who
7: are these people? Yo, man, where'd you get that, man? Make me something. When you see it, you go, wow.
1: Somehow in solitary confinement, he managed to create a kitchen and he made pralines.
8: And he said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I said, I know.
0: Forgiveness is a pretty big word. I, I don't think I expect her to forgive me.
8: I said, I have a few questions that I've been waiting almost 30 years to ask you, but I need to have them answered.
5: Today on ReSound, we explore some big ideas, justice, injustice, punishment, and redemption through small, powerful, personal stories. Stay with us. Back when Ray Matterson had a coke habit, he tried to rob a store with a toy gun. He was caught and sentenced to seven and a half years in prison. One year into his sentence, he unexpectedly found redemption in a needle, but not the kind you might imagine.
7: There were commercials coming on for all the upcoming bowl games. It was Christmas season, 1988, and Michigan was slated to play the University of Southern California in the Rose Bowl. The man, a couple of cells down from me, was hanging out some underwear and socks to dry on the tier railings, and... Among his underwear and socks were a pair of tube socks with yellow and blue stripes, which are University of Michigan colors. And I thought to myself, ah, I gotta have those socks. So I struck up a deal and I bought the socks for a pack of cigarettes, which was kind of the going rate. Uh, And I pulled the socks, the thread out of these socks, and I borrowed a sewing needle from the guard And I designed a sewing hoop out of a Rubbermaid dish, tore a piece of sheet from my bunk, drew a block letter M, and I embroidered this maize and blue letter M, which I then sewed onto a little makeshift hat that I made. And my plan was to watch the Rose Bowl game and get some popcorn and Kool-Aid from the prison store and pretend as though I were in Pasadena. What happened, though... As soon as I started sporting my, uh, my strange little Michigan hat around the, the cell block, yo, man, where'd you get that, man? Make me something. I was almost immediately inundated with requests for all variety of flags and sports emblems. Listen, man, I really want you to make me a such-and-such. And, such. and I'd say, well, I'd really like to make you a, a Seattle Seahawks emblem, but I don't have any Seahawk green. And then the next day, sort of mysteriously on the bunk, Seahawk green socks would show up. The pieces just, they started, they they were involving myself and my own experience more and more into the pieces. I started designing images from my own life experience. You know, home life problems, my drug and alcohol abuse. Where's Madison? Now he's up on his bunk sewing. Sports heroes, theater scenes, songs and peaceful thoughts a lot of times. I escaped into the artwork. When you see it, you go wow, and then you go closer under a magnifying glass, and you say wow again. I mean, we're talking a work that's maybe two and a half inches wide by two and a half inches tall. Two and a quarter by two and three quarter inches. I think all his works are that small. Once I was once I was uh, paroled, that was sort of my job. I've seen all different kinds of work that Ray did at the show last week. He had done one called Metamorphosis. Which was like a butterfly, a monarch butterfly, escaping from the cocoon, emerging from the chrysalis. I still continue to to take the the, the socks apart. The taking the the taking apart of the socks is sort of what happened in my life, because my life went from from one thing going into the you know into the unknown, into the dark, into the it came apart, uh, it was suspended animation, sort of, and then it was turned back into something emerging from the chrysalis, much more special than it had been.
5: That was Embroidery Felon by Jonathan Mitchell. Jonathan's beautifully produced podcast, The Truth, features what he calls movies for your ears. Intrigued? Find out more at our website, ThirdCoastFestival.org. Our next story probes the limits of confession and forgiveness. Margot van Sleitman's father was killed when she was a young girl, almost 30 years later the murderer wrote her a letter to apologize. Was that acceptable? Was that enough? Margot and the murderer she would come to know tell the story. It was great
8: growing up in Toronto. We came to Canada in 1969, just before I turned eight years old, and it was astounding. You know, we got here October 25th, the day before my father's birthday. But I think about a week or two after that, after we got here, there was snow. And we had never seen snow in our born days.
0: I was brought up in, a, in Oak Bay, uh, which is a sort of upper middle class neighborhood. So I had a, a fairly um, comfortable youth. My parents didn't drink or they didn't uh, abuse me in any way. They loved me very much, actually. My
8: dad, oh my God. He grew up in an area in Guyana, very handsome very fun-loving, the best teeth in the world.
0: I was a great kid at home. I didn't do very well at school. I, I rebelled against uh, the school system quite a bit and got a lot of trouble at school, but I, I you know, my parents would think I was a perfect little kid right at home. I, I did what I was supposed to do and did my chores and behaved myself pretty well at home, but when I got out the door, uh, I was a different person.
8: He was the first man in our family to try water skiing, a brilliant dancer, like my mum. They both, my mom still dances like a mad woman. He loved, loved, loved us very, very much. He loved his children very much.
0: First contact I ever had with the law was about seven years old. I was with my brother. He was two years older than me. He uh, and my cousin had a skeleton key in the old days. The locks weren't too good. They were going around and going into people's houses. We were doing something wrong. And then the next contact I had with the police uh, in a serious way, was probably when I was 11, busted for shoplifting. And I kind of started to hate them, and uh, I went down the road of uh, kind of seeing myself at war with the police. And so I started stealing, and it continued to escalate, actually.
8: Well, this is what happened. We did have a fairly idyllic life, and on March 27th and Easter Monday in 1978, um, my dad went into his place of employment, which uh, was the Hudson's Bay Company, and uh, he was only to be gone for two hours. I was supposed to go with him, and he said, no, you little pest, I'm only going to be gone two hours, I'll be right back home.
0: I'd been in jail quite a few times by that time, and had teamed up with a couple of guys that were um, pulling hold-ups. And um, we had ended up in Toronto, and um, had decided we were going to um, start robbing Brinks trucks. So we had this one place that we thought would look pretty easy, that we'd uh, start off with, Anglington Mall in, in Scarborough. So you go and look at the place. You find out the routine of the, the guards when the, the money comes. You know, they, uh, but this place, uh, there was only one guard that came, uh, picked up the money. He left the truck and went and got the money and then came back. So it looked fairly simple to take that one person out and uh, take his money. But it did go terribly wrong.
8: We used to hang up clothes downstairs on the line. My dad's clothes were there. And then I looked around. I ran upstairs. There was my mom sitting on the steps, all of 36 years old at that time. And my little brother and little sister were just hugging her. And she looked at me and said, Margot, Daddy dead.
0: We actually committed the robbery. Um, but uh, as we were leaving the store... Um, Mr. Van Slayman, who was uh, there on his day off, actually, as I understand, um, he uh, he had tried to stop us from leaving. I, as I came, I had I didn't see him actually. I, he was um, behind a clothes rack or something. I, you know, it was a higher clothes rack, so and he wasn't a really tall man. We were running away from the the crowd, kind of, and uh, people were saying, "Stop those guys!" And the next thing I know, Mr. Van Slayman stepped out and grabbed me by the lapels and. Uh, told me to stop
8: we didn't think very much about the man who did this to to my father there was nothing to think about except what are we going to do without dad, without Theodore we didn't follow the trial because it was irrelevant it didn't matter he was gone he was gone
0: Uh, my partner, the guy that was with me and, and I shot him I oh, don't know, I remember his face. I don't think he understood that we had guns. You know, he said to me, just give it up, son. The, the, the guy that was behind me, I guess, uh, or behind him, shot him first. I heard a shot rang out and I just pulled the trigger. And then he fell down. Yes, I remember that. I remember that. Was there anger?
8: Deep, deep anger that couldn't even fit into your body? Oh, yeah. But vengeance is, it didn't fit.
0: You know, I think I i dreaded that he was dead, yeah. As soon as we got home, we turned on the news. It was about, I think, two and a half months before we were actually arrested for that uh, robbery and murder. The only way to live with that, to change my life, I had to get to a point where I could look myself in the mirror and say, you know, at least I tried the hardest I could today and it's because I, I owe it to Mr. Van to do that. He had four children. He had three daughters and a son. Yes, I did think about them. I had two twin sons who I was uh, allowed to have what they call private family visits, which is 72 hours they, they come over and spend time with you and, um, you know, I'd sit there at night time, I couldn't sleep. Uh, and uh, I'd, I'd think about, you know, what it must be for his family to, um, I, you know, I was so lucky to be able to look, or sit there, lie there and watch them breathe as they went to sleep. And um, they were just little kids, eh, and nine years old, and I just thought about how his family must have been affected by that. And at least I could hold them now, and, and uh, I'd taken that away from him and, and his family.
8: I'm sitting there at my computer uh, one day. And I get an email. An email comes in, and I recognize the last name, and honest to God, is this who I think this is? Why is this person contacting me? I need a couple of questions answered. I need dialogue. 29 and a half years.
0: We thought we were doing it anonymously, actually. We did it where she didn't think she was going to realize it was me.
8: This is what I did... My daughter, Jessie, was watching television in the room with me. And I said to her, Jess, I think I just received an email from the wife of the man that murdered Grandpa Theodore. And I said, I think I'm going to email these people. You know, I said, I think that, you know, some of our family members will be very angry with me. I said, but I need to know I'm going to do it.
0: And uh, she asked if I would uh, write a letter if I was, wanted to apologize or anything. So I sent her off a, an email, basically, that said that I was very sorry and uh, that I, um, yeah. Well, what can you say? I want you to know that I, you know, I think about her. I think about them every day. So many things happened that, uh, that would make me ponder the fact that I was alive and their father was dead.
8: I went to bed, and in the morning I woke up to an apology, a short, very potent uh, paragraph from from Glenn apologizing uh, for murdering my father. I read it, and I cried, and I cried, and basically I thanked him. I emailed him, and I said, thank you. And I feel I am finally able to free my poor dad, who I've been carrying around with me for so damn long.
0: The very first time we ever met was an incredible moment.
8: I did meet the man who murdered my father. I asked for that. what I thought is in an email and in a letter you can say whatever you want, but unless you see someone's face, you don't know if it's authentic or not.
0: It was um, more than I expected actually. I-, I dreamt about things like that, but you know you have dreams that you know are never going to come true and I certainly had accepted the fact that probably those people would never want to hear from me. I, When I first got out, very first thing I did when I got out, I went back to Toronto to visit Mr. Mansleyman in his, uh, in his grave. and You could see from the grave that um, he was very well thought of. There was flowers there, and uh, I never thought I'd actually meet his family. I could understand they, the sustain they'd have for me. She wanted to come and meet me, so we... Uh,
8: so we met at Westminster Abbey in B.C., and I see this man, dressed in black, wearing a black fedora, some bling on him. I was sitting there, and I'm thinking, all right, Dad, here we go, kid. And I just walked up. So I looked at him. I said, you must be John Glendon Flett. He said, yes. I said, well, I am Margot Van Sleitman. And we looked at each other. I just hugged him. He hugged me, and we started to cry and cry and cry. And he said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I said, I know. I said, I have a few questions that I've been waiting almost 30 years to ask you, and I need to have them answered.
0: She wanted to know what had happened, all the details of that day. She was willing to listen. It was incredibly humbling.
8: And so I said, all right, you are the last human being to have seen Theodore Vance Lightman, my dad, alive. I want to know exactly what happened. Demonstrate exactly what happened. Oh yeah, and he did. And I must tell you, I was not a wreck. Like, I wasn't falling down, weeping. It was not about bravado. I'm just looking at this human being, and to be honest with you, if I were him, I would have jumped in that fountain and drowned myself. Because I can imagine that reliving that is not a joke. He was going into a very, 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 very dark place.
0: Forgiveness is a pretty big word. I I don't think I expect her to forgive me. I don't know if I forgive myself even. So I'm a Christian and I believe God forgives me, but uh, I work at uh, that concept of uh, forgiveness. I don't know if uh, that's something that I think is possible after a terrible thing like that.
8: I'm looking at this person like the first time I saw him, I couldn't take my eyes off him. Like, I, I, I couldn't. But I'm trying to imagine what it was like standing there in front of that man, Theodore Everestus, Vance Lightman, 40 years old, making a choice that would change the face of many, many, many people, the lives of many people. I kept looking at him thinking he saw daddy last, and now he's looking at Theodora's daughter. What does that feel like?
0: I do think that there's a possibility of connection with people after you've done them harm, but um, forgiveness, uh, its I don't know, I'm not sure what that exactly would look like.
8: Indirectly, I told my mom that I was going to meet with Glenn. And then I said to her, I said, Well, I have to tell you this. I have worked in prisons a few times. And then I said, And, and there's something else, Mum. She says, You've met him? And she said, Margot, why would you do that? I said, I need to. I need to. I said, He told me he's sorry, and I believe him, Mom, but I need to see him, you know? So my mum said to me, she said, but what if he's not telling the truth, Margot? What if he's lying? I said, Mom, then he has two crosses to bear. I believe that what he has to live with is much more, shall I say, demanding than what I have to live with. And I couldn't imagine it. I couldn't imagine it. He has to live with that. Yes, I do. I have compassion and sympathy for that. The depth of pain and guilt that he has felt is equal to mine, and both of them show the depth of love and compassion that we can also have. I know he knows that. I think that my dad is celebrating. That's how I feel. And the first time Glenn and I sat down and had a meal together, I looked at him, I said, my dad would have liked you.
0: In those days, I don't think he would have liked me. Uh, maybe today, uh, I'm maybe more likable, but uh, when, I, when I killed him, I, I certainly wasn't a very likable person then. It's, it's for her. This is more than I expect, ever could have expected, and I, I, I think I'd resolve my issues uh, uh, as much as they can be resolved. You know, this won't be over until I'm dead.
5: Forgiveness was produced by Michael O'Halloran and Margot Van Sleitman with Neil Sandel for Outfront, a show on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Outfront was cancelled, but for over a decade they helped ordinary Canadians tell their extraordinary personal stories on the radio. To hear more from our friendly neighbours to the north, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga.
6: Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.
1: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves.
5: You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxey. Support for ReSound comes from the Evanston Athletic Club, supporting fitness and health for the entire community since 1980. More information on the Evanston Athletic Club services is available at ChicagoAthleticClubs.com. Support also comes from Art Factory Screen Printing producing screen-printed and embroidered apparel for businesses, organizations, schools, and events in Chicago. Information on quotes and image galleries are available at artfactorytees.com. In a little while, we'll bring you the story of a man who made prison life a tiny bit sweeter by making candy. But first, we visit a place within prison rarely talked about, solitary confinement. Producer Claire Shone spoke to nine survivors of solitary, one of whom was there for almost 30 years, and brings us their stories. President Obama recently
6: declared, we have banned torture without exception. However, some would take exception to this claim.
9: The hole. We called it the hole. The hole. The hole.
6: The hole. The hole. That's what prisoners call it. Among other things.
9: The bucket, the can, the box, the hole, the bing, Uh, the chiller, lockup, maxi-maxi, the shoe, solitary confinement.
10: Solitary confinement.
6: (laughs) One person, one cell.
11: The cell that I lived in most of the time was six feet wide and about nine feet long. The
12: cell was probably like maybe seven feet, maybe... Nine feet long.
13: Maybe nine by six.
9: Five by nine. Five
13: Maybe by nine.
14: a ten by whatever.
9: It was big enough for me to lay down, and I'm six foot three.
14: It's, it's very small.
6: These men and women are survivors. That's the term for prisoners who have survived solitary confinement, because the hole is something which must be survived, if you're lucky.
3: Lockdown, total lockdown. The best way I can describe it is this. The cell was a windowless cell.
12: And you had a bar door and an outer solid door closed over you.
15: The door was a double lock slide door.
12: Uh, the walls were a cinder block.
13: Cement, like a slab for us to sleep in.
12: The bed is a four inch slab of concrete.
16: The bed is concrete. There's a uh, small concrete slab that serves as your table. And the floor, it was concrete. There was a sink
10: with no stopper
16: and a toilet. There's a combination toilet and sink that's stainless steel, no seat, you know.
3: Everything is concrete and steel.
16: Metal and cement.
15: That was it.
3: No two
6: stories that I heard were exactly alike, but a picture of the experience of
10: solitary confinement was emerging. The light. I did not have control over the light switch.
12: Oh, I double neon light.
10: It was usually on, and it was very
13: difficult to get it turned off at night. There's one light that comes in from the outside that's on all the time.
11: There's lights on um, most of the night. The light would be on sometime
9: 24-7. It never went out. People are in situations where they have the lights on 24 hours a day. In the situation I was in, the lights were out 24 hours a day. They never turned the lights on.
11: You in the dark for an um, like extended period of time. It was dark all the time. It's been too much light, which can be blinding, and it was too much darkness, which is also blinding. It's been both at times.
6: Solitary confinement is about sensory deprivation.
16: The Barstar cell is designed for sensory deprivation because the cell itself is recessed, it sits in, and it's bars on, on the front of it. But then you have what's called a trap or a dead space. And then you have another solid door and wall. You cannot stand up to the bars and see a little bit down to the left or a little bit down to the right.
9: There was a big door that closed and you didn't hear anything outside of the
16: door.
10: And the first night that I was there, I thought, ah, it's so quiet. But very quickly, the quiet becomes oppressive.
16: It can get eerily quiet in these places. Real quiet. Most of what you're going to hear is your own breathing, you know? You might hear your heart rate pumping up. You could hear bugs. What you hear is nothing. You know, there, there is no sound to hear.
6: Sensory deprivation. But it's also about overwhelming the senses.
16: When there is a noise, like a steel gate opening because the guards are going to come down and tear. It's just nerve-wracking to hear that noise. Coming onto the tier,
12: it's a heavy steel door and it opens electrically, which means you hear. <laughs> they step in and they just let it slam shut. All right. They walk down the tier, they get combat boots on.
16: Boots hitting concrete. And all the guards carry clubs.
13: Banging the, the batons for whatever it is they have, the nightsticks, sticks, against the wall.
12: You hear a lot of banging. Mental ill guys do this banging.
13: Screaming and yelling, crying, uh, cops threatening, uh, constant the threats.
11: There were times when it got close to being so loud it was intolerable.
16: a crying baby, or the leaves of a tree fluttering in the wind. You don't hear any of these sounds at all.
11: Sometimes you welcome the noise. You wanted to hear somebody, regardless of what noise they made. I really wanted to talk to
9: somebody, you know, just somebody to be there. You can go days without talking to people, sometimes weeks, sometimes months. You can't touch anyone, you can't hear anybody speak.
10: There was no touch, there was no human touch. No, no human touch. Except for aggressive touching by guards when they would come in to, to uh, chain me up, to take me out. No human touch.
3: You have no contact with guards unless you're handcuffed and shackled.
13: Human touch. Or human Pat
10: search me, which they would do, although touch. I was only in that cell, so what could I have? Touch.
9: I did not touch, touch anyone for years. Touch. It's all... It's just all in your head.
3: For years. For years.
13: Well, you can touch the, uh, the, the cement. Uh, that's about it.
6: The whole affects one's sense of touch, sight,
13: sound, even smell.
3: It's a dusty smell. It's smell like concrete.
13: There's steel. I think maybe some rust.
3: Stale, musty air.
13: You know the smell of rust?
15: That was it. Uh, That That was
6: it. Nine cells, nine bodies, nine stories. Who are these people? Americans are imprisoned for everything from drugs or theft, to possession of weapons and robbery, to assault and murder. And some are innocent. Two of these nine former prisoners had their convictions overturned after decades in prison.
3: My name is Hakeem Shaheed. My prison number was 10199050. I was a federal prisoner from 1989 to 2006.
10: My name is Laura Whitehorn and I'm from New York City. I did a little more than 14 years I was a federal prisoner.
12: My name is Robert Dalalo. I'm from Massachusetts. I'm 66 years old. I just completed a 40-year sentence that I overturned. Well, I hit most of all the reform schools. I hit the Concord Prison and Walpole State Prison. I've been to Marion, Illinois twice. I've been in uh, Lewisburg, Pennsylvania.
9: My name is Bilal Sunni Ali. I'm originally from Harlem, New York. I'll be 60 years old in July. I was in prison for five years totally, if you count it all up.
14: Manera L. Bumani from Newark, New Jersey. I was in prison for four years in the Etna Mayhem Correctional Facility in uh, Northern State Prison.
16: Ray-Luke Lavasseur was born and raised in Maine, left for many decades, uh, returned in 2004 when I got out of prison. I was in prison 20 years including uh, the notorious federal prison at Marion, which is the prison that replaced Alcatraz. And then when ADX Administrative Maximum was built, I was sent to ADX.
13: I'm Tommy Escarciga. I'm originally from El Paso, Texas. I was in a, in a jail that was called Civil Brand Institute for Women.
15: Daino King Archangel Rodriguez, a member of the My Land Kings and Queens Nation, in New Jersey State. I've been in the pen as an adult. 12 and a half years. Uh, Northern State Prison, Artville Correctional, Bordentown Correctional, Trenton, uh, Southwoods,
13: Prison, Louisburg, and
15: the And as a juvenile, probably around 26 uh, institutions. Robert King Wilkerson,
11: Angola State Prison, Louisiana. Uh, it's a maximum security prison. It covers 18,000 acres. It gets its name from the country, Angola, Africa, because it's alleged that a lot of the slaves uh, coming from Angola were habitated at that plantation.
6: All of these prisons have solitary confinement cells. The use of solitary is widespread in the U.S. and growing. Tens of thousands of inmates are locked in solitary today. In fact, there are now more than 30 supermax prisons where every inmate in the entire institution is in solitary confinement.
3: They come up with fancy names. You have SHU. SHU is the special housing unit.
9: It was also called administrative segregation. That's the most polite term for it. CCR, and it means closed cell restricted. Uh,
13: Timeout. that's a little euphemism. Uh, another name for solitary confinement is Eloyo, which means the hole.
9: We called it the hole.
6: Prison itself is hard and dangerous, but some would argue that it is a fair price to pay for criminal actions against society. However, being put in solitary confinement has nothing to do with what you did on the outside, why you were arrested, tried, convicted. In fact, prisoners are not sentenced to solitary by a judge or in a court of law at all. It's a decision that happens once you're inside. It's made by a prison warden or a prison board at their discretion and with very little oversight.
15: I was placed in lockup because of my membership in the My Latin Kings and Queens Nation. That's labeled a gang, but and now gangs are labeled security threat group units. That's the name they use now. Then any member of a security threat group, they'll put you in a control unit, which is a hole. They placed me in solitary because I was, um, I was a member
11: of the Black Counterparty. <laughs> uh, that was their reason, but Uh, I think they ran out of reason after a couple of years.
6: The hole is supposed to be used for the protection of the prisoner or those around him, but it isn't always the most violent who are sent there. Instead, it's those who are seen as troublemakers. It's used as punishment for those who will not or, in some cases, cannot obey the rules. The mentally ill end up in solitary. So do the organizers.
3: It's not always for safety. If you are a leader of any group, or if you are influential of a group of inmates, then they can use that to lock you down.
13: I was organizing the women in civil brand because the um, deputies there were turning on the heat in the summer and the um, fan in the winter. So uh, being that I had not ever been to prison before, uh, I said, they can't do this. And, you know, all the rest of the prisoners are looking at me like, yes, they can. No, 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 we have to organize and all that. And so they came for me.
3: The last 10 years of my incarceration was uh, uh, spent in Marion Federal Prison, which everyone knows is a supermax lockdown, 23 and one I was sent there for giving a speech to the NAACP. Uh, the prison officials at the United States Penitentiary in Terre Haute claimed that the speech that I gave them was inflammatory, The speech was only telling the NWCP visitors at the prison that there was a lot of racism going on in the prison amongst the guards, and there was unneeded and unjustified um, touching from the guards on prisoners. They felt that um, it was an embarrassment. So they decided that it was time to teach me a lesson. These are their words now, to teach me a lesson. Now, I was supposed to be sent there for 18 months, Uh, However, I spent 10 years there.
11: Of course, they say they intended to, you know, to reform, but um, they're designed to to punish um, because all the reform was taken out of prison, the so-called, quote, reform.
6: There are also the stories about physical abuse, beatings and assault by guards. They're upsetting though not unexpected because we hear those stories but the idea of solitary confinement the conscious act of separating a human being from everything that allows us to be human
14: that's something we don't hear about
12: you he had nothing in the room but you
14: this your lonely body in a cell that's empty
9: it's it's hard to describe nothing
14: emptiness that's what solitary confinement is. No other way to describe it.
9: And
11: you were confined to a cell 23 hours a day?
14: 23 hours in lockup. I was there 24
6: hours a day. When prisoners are allowed an hour of exercise, they're still often kept in isolation.
15: You got recreation sometimes. They'll determine whether you should get wrecked, whether they want to give you wreck. Nothing's guaranteed in a control
6: unit. Nothing's guaranteed. Decisions about every minute aspect of
10: daily life seem random and arbitrary.
15: No matter what a book says, if a book says you're entitled to a pencil, you're not going to get a pencil.
10: Food that was supposed to be hot would be served cold. Food that was supposed to be served cold would be served hot. It's little microaggressions.
16: I've been in holes where they control the toilet flush from the outside.
15: It was like their form of punishment.
16: Coming and going. i got to be strip-searched bare-ass naked, you know, and it's a full, you know, cavity search and the whole thing. The main thing was not so much
10: each condition, because those changed sometimes. The main thing was the message, you have no control. You are at our
3: mercy.
13: I felt uh, very vulnerable, very scared. You try to do everything you can
3: to please the prison officials to get out of that situation. Everything you
9: could possibly do, and there's not much you could do. The key is in the hand of, of a prison guard who may or may not follow the orders of the board that put you in, in isolation.
10: And you had no recourse.
9: Or the people who sentenced you to isolation may tell them, don't let him out when his time is up.
10: And that was the thing I think that made me the most depressed was knowing that there were rules that they were supposed to adhere to and knowing that they weren't and knowing that there were no penalties, that no one was holding them accountable.
15: I've spent seven and a half years in the control unit. Maybe about 12 years in lockdown.
11: I was there for 29 years in you know, solitary confinement.
12: Many, many years in solitary confinement.
11: 29 years, you know, 29 years, 29 years, you know. 29
6: years in solitary. How could this be happening here? This is not Guantanamo or Abu Ghraib. This is Kentucky, Louisiana, California, New York. Every state in America uses solitary confinement.
11: Solitary confinement is just as real as real could be. It, it plays on your big time, and it, it could, um, could wipe the mind.
6: What does it do to a person to be locked up in a nine-by-six room? for weeks,
14: months, years, alone. A life like that, it damages you psychologically, you know, because uh, human beings uh, need to interact with each other.
9: It's not normal to be in the dark for days and days and days on end. It strips you of a lot of things. It mixes you up.
15: I could hardly sleep. Like, I had insomnia.
12: Waking up at night in the sweats,
3: panic attacks. I would have a panic attack and I would bang on the wall. I would bang on the wall.
15: It would trigger something in my nerves where I would break out in hives from head to toe. It would happen three or four times a day.
3: Your senses is so sharp, you can actually hear a mouse walking on the floor.
13: I lost track of time. They took my watch.
10: And I was not permitted to know what time it was.
3: There's no concept of time. You know no time, in lockdown. There's sleep and awakeness. That's it. In the madness, in between and the all. The madness, that. in between all
12: that. The hate and the anger take such control of you. Your rational thinking goes out the window.
10: I felt angry. I felt so angry at times that I couldn't focus on anything else.
12: I mean, horrific thoughts are playing in your mind.
14: It, 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 it made me horrific develop hatred. are playing
9: in your mind. The anger builds up and the frustration builds up.
13: I cried a lot. I cried uh, quietly. I cried loudly.
3: The anger, the rage, the bitterness, the anxiety. The nightmares, and and as years passed, you know, you know one year passed, two years passed, three years passed, it just seemed like the walls in the cell began to close in. They began to close in. You could feel your mind, like, trying to escape from you. And you begin to wonder, well, what's going on with you?
13: I distrusted a lot of my own perceptions
11: begin to hear voices begin to see things
13: you see sort
12: of like something moved in yourself that like there was somebody there
10: and you never knew what it was and there's nobody
12: there you know
10: I would try to hear things try to hear human voices and um, sometimes I would imagine that I was hearing noises
12: you hear a noise and it sounds like somebody said something to you start hearing things that's not even being said. And say, yeah, you know, yeah, what? And nobody's
3: answering it. And you wonder, were they whispering about doing something to you? Were they even saying you going crazy? Paranoia sets in so deep, it just begins to collapse in on you. And what happens is chaos. chaos.
8: insanity.
6: The hole drives people insane. And those who go in with emotional problems come out far, far worse. Psychiatrists describe a syndrome seen in people who've experienced sensory deprivation, POWs, hospital patients in full body cast, prisoners in the hole. The effects include insomnia, paranoia, rage, time distortion, depression, despair, claustrophobia, hallucination, and more.
3: They'll say the end of the barrel. That's what the prison officials call it, the end of the barrel. Control units. Controlled
11: move. Call it maximum security, administrative segregation, <gasps> or disciplinary transfer,
14: segregation,
9: isolation, you know, on and on and on and on and on. So many of them.
14: I will say torture chambers. No other way to describe them.
9: Solitary confinement is torture.
14: It is torture, 100%.
9: Of
15: course, it's torture. It, it, it's, it's torture in every form of fashion.
6: The United Nations Human Rights Committee says that prolonged solitary confinement is torture.
10: I believe that putting human beings in total isolation is torture.
16: The cell itself is designed to severely limit your senses. Human beings
10: are social beings and to remove not only human contact, but any kind of color, tactile. The concrete, the
3: bars, the wall sensory
10: deprivation.
3: That's torture. How do they expect you to maintain your humanity when everything you see, everything you touch, is just so hard?
6: The effects of solitary don't end at the prison gates. More than 95% of prisoners are released at some point, and many are released directly from solitary confinement into the streets.
13: When I first got out, uh, I was really, um, Psychotic, hearing voices, not knowing what happened or, you know. My thinking level was
14: diminished greatly. Short-term
12: memory was gone, all right? My hands, to this day,
14: still shake. I, I, I went into depressed mode,
13: um, and I still do.
12: I wake up every hour of 45 minutes. I do not sleep straight through no more.
13: I get scared when a door locks behind me. Uh, elevators are a problem for me. The subway train
12: opens up and a mass of humanity is all around you. Instant panic attack. Post-traumatic
3: stress disorder. When I was released from Marion, I was diagnosed with suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. I didn't know what that was. How can you come out functioning well when you have been remade? Your whole being has been rearranged into something that you don't even know who you are. You don't even know who you are anymore.
6: So what does this have to do with the rest of us who are not in prison, who don't have a child or a spouse in prison? We all have plenty of other problems to think about.
11: People basically they are concerned with, you know, trying to survive everyday living that it takes to survive. So they will tell you, well, I'm not political. I don't. They don't realize that all of their life depends on politics, you know.
6: There's a practical way to look at the question of how this affects all of us, personally.
3: Let me tell you something. Most of the prisoners in our country will come home one day. You got people going insane who are psychologically tortured and some even physically tortured. They come, come to the street one day and they might feel, you know what, it's time for me to pay the country back. This is the dangers of what's in the prisons. Look,
12: you have a dog in a cage, you keep hitting them with a stick, keep brutalizing him, open the cage let the dog run free. What's the dog going to do? Lick you, wag his tail, or he's going to tear your leg off? This is the same thing with a human being. You take a human being and you dehumanize him, degrade him, emasculate him, disorientate the hell out of him, take
3: him directly from DDU,
12: and they do this, just dropping him into the community.
3: I know if the American people were educated as to what's going on in the prisons in our country, they would be up in arms that something be done. Is
6: this true, that America would be up in arms if we only knew? I'm not sure. In any case, I'm going to give the last word to someone who is up in arms. My name is Teresa Vaughn. I'm from Adrian, Michigan. Teresa is not a survivor. She's a mother of a young man, Timothy Souders, who was also not a survivor. Tim
2: did not survive solitary
6: confinement.
2: Tim was a a normal teenage boy who went into prison at the age of 19 for shoplifting.
6: Tim's story is almost impossible to believe, but it's been very well documented. In fact, there was a video camera monitoring his cell. Tim had bipolar disorder. And when he was arrested for stealing a toy from a 7 he flipped
2: out. Tim was in a manic episode. He wasn't thinking clearly. And as he was leaving the stores, all the alarms went off. And then he started to run, and he had had a pocket knife on him. So when the police approached him, he was saying, Kill me. I want you to kill me. And they charged him with felony resisting arrest.
6: They gave him a three-year sentence. And then, because he continued to act erratically, they locked him in solitary.
2: Tim was writing me letters home saying that some of these things were going on, and I didn't believe that it was as bad as he was saying because I was just, you know, I never, as a middle-class American person, never thought that something like that could be going on inside the prisons. I, I really didn't believe that it was that bad until I saw the videotape. And it, it was a hundred times worse than I could have ever imagined.
6: Tim died in solitary after being shackled to a concrete bed for 17 hours straight.
2: Tim was in there for 17 hours in two-inch chains across his waist, his ankles, and his wrists without anybody letting him up to use the bathroom without anybody giving him water, without anybody coming into the room. The cause of death was
6: dehydration.
2: And the autopsy said that Tim died of dehydration with complications due to being restrained, accidental death. Only in the corrections department does somebody die an accidental death of being restrained. I mean, we would call it murder, Tim might be one of the survivors, being able to share his story, to make a change, but instead, it's me. I'm the one that has to do this for him because he's not here with us.
15: Security threat group.
13: There's disciplinary uh, isolation. Keep block. Uh, special housing. CCR. As La Solapa. Supermax. 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 Supermax.
11: Supermax. 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 Supermax.
12: There's a whole pile of names that people use. I mean, it's just you know what it is when you go there.
5: Survivors by Bay Area producer and teacher Claire Schoen with original music by Kike Cruz. To read an interview with Claire, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. So one of the guys you heard in our last story, Robert King Wilkerson, who served 29 years in solitary confinement, features in our next story as well. I know it's odd, but his life is so intriguing that two different producers, completely independently, included him in their work. Against all odds, in solitary confinement, Wilkerson started cooking, and the food he made made everyone's life a little sweeter. Producers Nikki Silva and Davia Nelson, a.k.a. The Kitchen Sisters, first heard about him through a hotline they set up when they were working on a series of stories about hidden kitchens.
1: Message
6: 24 was received at 1 20 p.m. July 6th.
1: My name is Arissa Arendt. I live in New Orleans. I have a friend who created the most amazing kitchen. His name is Robert King Wilkerson. He was in prison at Angola State Penitentiary for 31 years. 29 of those years, he was in solitary confinement. He started a chapter of the Black Panther Party with two of his friends. They've sort of become a cause celeb, known as the Angola Three. Somehow, in solitary confinement, he managed to create a kitchen, and he made pralines, which we love here in New Orleans. He's out now, they decided they had made a mistake for locking him up for so long. He had a new trial and he sells his candies that he calls lanes, and they are really, really good.
11: I was fascinated with sugar. I used to watch Mama make candy with pecans and sugar and water. But it wasn't until um, some years later when I first went to prison, I was cooking in the kitchen this guy was in the bakery. He could bake all kinds of pastries, make all kind of candy. I was fascinated with the candy. What I saw before my eyes was like a science being revealed. My name is Robert King Wilkerson. We used to get milk practically every day, a butter, margarine, it wasn't really butter, and sugar. They would put it on your tray whether you drink coffee or not. So I used to get the guys to save the sugar. Sometime I was fortunate enough to get pecans. They got a lot of pecan trees around Angola. And they had some officers, once they tasted candy, making sure I had pecans. <laughs> we would bribe the orderly. Sometimes you'd get a fruit can, peach can, but most of the time it was coke cans. They were easy to get. Just peel the top and then peel another can, triple it up, maybe 18 inches long, and have toilet paper, roll it up, and turn it into like a burner. It might take a day or two, maybe three, but it'll I was definitely hidden. I couldn't let them know I was really doing it. They would come in, conduct a shakedown and get the pot, get the can and everything else, and then write up. Yep. I, I kinda enjoyed the thrill of going outside the box a little bit. Making candy and then giving it away, you know especially guys on death row, because I just wanted them to have something that they hadn't had in a long time.
3: Good afternoon. This is KLSP, 91.7 FM on your radio dial. And we broadcast daily from the Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola. I'd like to take this opportunity to wish all of the brothers up on death row a very beautiful day. And I tell you what...
13: King was released in 2001. On the very first day he's released, he's making candy. He was sitting there just stirring, stirring real slowly sugar candy free leans is what he calls them
11: i call them free leans. i mean i wanted them to rhyme with pralines when i first got out i went to french quarters and I, I went through every candy shop and i thought i could do better uh, having i guess perfected a candy while i was in prison
4: and he uses it for a fundraiser political organizing events a lot of times he'll bring some candy and my name is Anne harkness i'm an activist and i have been king's pecan supplier. Pretty much since he got out of prison, everywhere he goes, he'll just bust out in some candy making.
11: My name is Malik Rahim, co-founder of Common Ground Relief and resident of uh, New Orleans in the community of Algiers. King and I was raised together. His backyard was uh, adjacent to my backyard. He had a lot of fruit trees. When well, there wasn't a lot of food at home, you know, like berries pecan, peaches, it was sustainable, you know. It had a variety of good things that nature provided free. Free liens is something that he's doing to subsidize his income. That's the only option that really he had, is by making candy. On his wrapper is not just no uh, logo of king. It's free Angola 3. About his uh, two comrades that are still uh, incarcerated. He always looked at that injustice. You know, his kitchen Green will reflect
1: it. In water. It's 10 to 12 feet deep at least. It is full of debris.
6: It is some of the dirtiest toxic soup you can imagine. Reporting in New Orleans, I'm Yancy.
11: It was a few days before Katrina. I had made a batch of candy. That was the last time. I could have went to the Superdome, but there was no place to keep a dog. Kenya, it's the name of my dog. I got her when she fit in the palm of my hand, you know. So I elected to hold tight. There were some people who came by in boats. We exchanged food. I gave most of the candy away. There were dogs screaming who had been locked up in houses. My neighbor next door had to break in the house, but I sealed it back up. I had to go in there and feed her dogs. She had two of them, and I had to fight them to feed them. You know, and I had been in the water twice to save two birds whose wings had gotten wet. I was hearing about so much death and devastation that was going on around me. I felt imperative that I save a life. I think I cried more in those 14 to 16 days that I was in the house after Katrina than I did in 31 years I did in prison. It not only took so much away from me as an individual, it replicated this hundreds of thousands at a time. I think candy is, is a collateral. Am I doing what I'm doing, keeping focus on the, um, the plight of my two comrades who remain in prison. If doing so by cooking, making candy, opening up kitchen can produce money to aid them, so be it. Maybe that's, that's my calling.
5: That was King's Candy by the Kitchen Sisters. To hear more stories of kitchens hidden away in unlikely places, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxai. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Dojo, a full-service digital agency, on the web at doejo.com dojo, we fuel ideas that grow. Resound is also supported by Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation and the Menaki Foundation. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.
4: You've been listening to the Third Coast podcast. Stay connected with us through Facebook and Twitter or by signing up for our email list at thirdcoastfestival.org. If you like what you heard today, consider writing us a review on iTunes or sending us a few bucks. As always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel
2: style with Quinn's.